Yesterday we left uh, Siddhartha Gautama, still the Buddha-to-be, in Sanani Gama, a village near Uruvela. I hope you've all brought your map. And it would have been around this time, although our text, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the 26th discourse of the middle-length sayings, uh, does not actually mention this. But he would have been joined by five companions. Uh, These are often called uh, the, uh, the band of five, the five ascetics. And they were, in fact according to the uh, Pali commentarial tradition, five Brahmins from Shakya, from his homeland, the senior of whom, a man called Kondanya, was actually present at Siddhartha's birth. And Kondanya, together with four younger Brahmins, Mahanama, a different Mahanama, Badya, Asaji and Vapa came down from Shakya to join Siddhartha in his quest. And it seems that um, when they met him, he was involved in um, the practice of asceticism. We saw yesterday how initially he had sought out teachers and he had come, become <laughs> proficient in certain forms of absorptive meditation on nothingness and neither perception nor non-perception. After that, it may have been the time he began simply not to absorb himself in something very abstract and very remote, but simply to seek detachment, enlightenment perhaps, through, de- through uh, denying the demands of his body. And so he reduced his intake of food, it says, until he was only eating one grain of rice a day. And this became his path for a while. But here too, he reached a point at which this practice was not resolving the primary dilemma, the dilemma of his existence, that he was struggling to resolve. And so he um, abandons this practice too. The name of the, the place that is mentioned, Sanani Gama, Gama means village, Sanani is the name of the place. It's here that in other sources we find him receiving his first meal, a sweetened rice milk given to him by a young woman called Sujata. And this revives him. And our text uh, picks up, no, I'm sorry, it's not our text here. This takes us back to the Mahasakaka Sutta, also in the, in the middle length sayings, where, and let me repeat it all again, it's at that point that he remembered I recall that when my father, the Shakyan, was occupied, while I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, 
quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, I entered upon and abided in the first absorption, accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Could that be the path to awakening? So it's at this moment, in a moment one imagines to be of great despair, perhaps of failure, that he suddenly recalls a moment in his childhood when he'd been sitting at the side of the field under a tree and entered this frame of mind. There, there, he thought, lies the way. And so he leaves Sanani Gama and he crosses the river, the Neranjana, and then finds himself um, in the countryside, in the woodland perhaps, and he sits beneath a tree. Now the Arya Pariyasana Sutta does not um, uh, go into any detail as to, as to what he then does. But I think it's not unreasonable to imagine that what he uh, then practiced in this state of mind he's just described would be very similar to what he then encourages his own followers to do later. And this would be effectively the practice of mindful attention. And so I'm going to read a little from the uh, Satipatthana Sutta the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness, which is the tenth discourse in the uh, middle-length discourses. And he says, And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating the body as a body? Here a monk, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, and established mindfulness in front of him, ever mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands, I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he understands, I breathe out short. And the text continues. I'm not going to to, to read the whole thing. But the point, and again, he extends this to the breath, to the movements of the body when he's walking, when he's eating, when he's going to the bathroom, everything. He is aware of what is happening in that moment. And this, it seems, is what he finds himself uh, observing and contemplating as he sits beneath this tree. In other words, he turns his attention to, in a way, what is most evident and apparent and present to his experience. Instead of looking for some mystical state like nothingness or neither perception nor non-perception, or seeking to somehow separate his mental experience from his bodily experience, he simply notices what's going on. 
And this, I feel, is a very radical step. And it's through such practice that he experiences what we call awakening, waking up. And I'm going to now read from the Arya Pariyasna Sutta his own account of his awakening. He says, This Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise, But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in it. It is hard for them to see this truth, namely specific conditionality, dependent origination. And it is hard to see this. And it is hard to see this truth, namely the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nirvana. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. So this is, I feel, one of the most succinct accounts, in the Buddha's own words, of what it was that he woke up to. And it comes down to a single thing. Namely, as he says, specific conditionality, dependent origination. So here we have an insight, an understanding, a waking up to the very nature of what is occurring for him and for all of us, in each moment. There's no suggestion of some, of some grand, transcendent, or divine reality that suddenly becomes apparent to him. And in that sense, his experience does not conform to what is often spoken of in other mystical traditions. There's no God here, no divine, no Brahman. There is simply an awareness of the contingent play of phenomena that rise and pass away in each moment. One of the ways in which this idea of dependent origination is summarized by him, he simply says, when this is, that arises a recognition that whatever occurs in our experience, anything at all, is something that has emerged out of a matrix of other conditions, of other things. And if we turn our attention to any of those causal conditions and we look at that, we find that that too has emerged out of another nexus of conditions and causes and circumstances. And what it is that we experience now, that too, perhaps in the next moment, perhaps a little later, will likewise become the condition for something else. 
And that something else too will become the condition for something else. So the idea of dependent origination, which I prefer in a way simply to call contingency, is that there is nothing fixed in our experience. There's no primal ground. There's no divine source. There is simply this endless, infinite play of things. Whether we look inside ourselves and observe, as we're doing here, our bodily sensations, our breath, our feelings, our mental states, our emotions, all of these too are part of that continually unfolding and vanishing flux of things. When we look into the nature of ourself, even though it might appear that there is some kind of fixed um, transcendent observer, that too, on analysis, on experience, is likewise fluctuating, coming and going, clusters of perceptions, of feelings, of thoughts, of emotions that is equally as subject to transience and conditionality and contingency as anything else. The centrality of contingency, dependent origination, is found in, 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 in another comment the Buddha makes. He says, the one who sees contingency sees the Dhamma. In other words, the, the core, one might even say the law, the word Dhamma also means something like law, is found through simply observing our reality as it appears and as it vanishes. Another expression which becomes a kind of slogan of the early Buddhist community is whatever arises is something that passes away. Which again suggests this same insight into the contingent flux of things. Now there are some texts in which um, he expands on this insight and says how he saw back through all of his past lifetimes how he had come into being, he had passed away, he'd been born, he'd died, he'd been reborn, he'd died again, and he saw this back through myriad generations of his own continuum as a living creature. I would understand this as simply putting into the commonly accepted framework of his time the idea of of endless and repeated birth and death, this same principle at work. Nowadays, we might find it more compelling in terms of our worldview to see the processes of dependent origination occurring through cosmological time, through the evolution of beings 
through natural selection. This, to me, has the advantage of being grounded in far more evidence than we can possibly find for the theory of rebirth or reincarnation. And the point, surely, is not to get caught up in whether there is or there is not rebirth, but to find ways of looking at the world in terms of our own current understanding that illustrate what, for the Buddha, is undeniably the core of his insight. To think of this universe as having sprung from an infinitesimally tiny singularity of space-time that then burst forth, we know not from what, 15 billion years ago, and through processes of cause and effect and cause and effect and cause and effect generating the 100 billion galaxies in this universe, and how on one planet revolving around one star in one of these galaxies, four and a half billion years ago, when in the primeval soup on this earth, then single-celled organisms began to evolve, becoming multicellular organisms, and then moving into more complex forms of life that leave the oceans, generate into amphibians and other forms of sentient creatures on this planet. We can see precisely the same process at work. That when this arises, when this is, that arises. We see this ordered um, continuum of endlessly changing, mutating, fluctuating forms of existence coming and going on this earth. The idea of contingency, dependent origination, is also intimately tied in to the idea of emptiness. This is an idea that we don't find so strongly developed in the Pali literature. We find its most eloquent proponent in the figure of Nagarjuna, who lived around 500 years after the Buddha in India and brought together many of the key ideas in the early canon and forged them into um, a very compelling philosophical outlook. For Nagarjuna, whatever is contingent is empty and whatever is empty is contingent. The two things mean exactly the same. So, when we say that something is uh, arising dependently, we're also saying it is empty of any fixed essential identity or being of its own. Now, it seems to us, in terms of our common sense, in terms of our, some of our deepest intuitions, that I, for example me, the ego, the self, that this is not contingent. It seems, to, it seems to us 
almost undeniably, that the person who's listening to these words is the person who's remained exactly like this, has been like this ever since we can remember, without actually seeming to have been affected by change, by contingency, by suffering, by decisions we've made and so on. Which allows, for example, the kind of question that came up yesterday, if the Buddha was alive today, what would he say about X? In other words, we assume that there is a kind of fixed person identity, the Buddha, who could be quite simply transferred from one set of conditions into another. But as we look into things, whether it be through the kind of careful attention that we pay to our experience here and now, or whether it be through exploring the nature of the human organism and life on earth through the eyes of a biologist, nowhere do we find this apparently evident me. If I cut myself open, if I look into my neural networks in my brain, this apparently self-evident me disappears. In one text attributed to Nagarjuna, he compares this to a man who is in a desert and beholds a mirage. And from a distance, it looks quite undeniable that out there there are camels and palm trees and pools of water. But the closer he gets to it, the more it begins to fade until it disappears altogether. And it's a bit like that too with our sense of I, my sense of me. Functionally, in terms of getting about in the world and doing things and making decisions and so on and having conversations with other people, then of course this self seems entirely self-evident. But as soon as we turn our attention more closely onto what we call me, the more elusive it becomes until, in fact, we find ourselves peering into our body-mind complex and finding nothing but a swirling play of thoughts, of feelings, of bodily sensations, of sounds, and so forth and so on. But when we stop that close inquiry and we go out of the room and we meet a friend, then we're back into the self-evident world of me and you and other people, which all makes perfect sense and is entirely necessary. So there's something about the observing of contingency that cuts through some very deep intuitive senses we have of what we are. Another meaning, I feel, of emptiness is that it points to how nothing in this world is necessary. What is happening now need not have happened. And yet we're somehow immersed in this idea that the world could not 
be what it is without the necessity of me in it. (laughs) And yet our own existence is, if we reflect on it, something that has come about through an extraordinary set of circumstances which could easily not have happened. Perhaps the best example of this is our own conception. Somehow one of my father's spermatozoan impregnated one of my mother's ova. If things had turned out slightly differently, if they'd got home late that night from some party. (laughs) It might have been a minor inconvenience for them, but it would have resulted in my not being here. (laughs) (laughs) And we can see the same in many other areas. We could imagine, for example, that if a particular asteroid had not impacted onto the Yucatan Peninsula 65 million years ago, then this world could still be dominated by dinosaurs. It was only because of that meteorological impact that the dinosaurs were wiped out, at least according to current understanding. Somehow or other they were wiped out at that time. And that then opened up an ecological environments in which mammals were able then to thrive. The mammals which had eked out a precarious existence amongst these dinosaurs now had free reign. They were little, little, probably little rodent creatures of some kind. And they then thrive, they then evolved into the primates and the higher primates such as us. Now again, it seems difficult for us to imagine a world without human beings in it. But human beings have been on this planet for, in geological time, just the blink of an eye. And there's no reason to assume that we will um, continue to survive, certainly not forever, but perhaps not even for very long at all. And all of those things that we regard as so essential to our life and so um, undeniable to what this world is could be rapidly obliterated and forgotten, perhaps just another meteor impact. So I find that by looking um, into areas of our understanding that really have nothing to do with Buddhism, we find this principle of dependent origination of contingency very beautifully and very credibly illustrated. Now, you may be wondering about the final sentence of this text where the Buddha said, if I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. 
this points to, to, to how he, he, he's suddenly woken up to something that is clearly not something that is um, commonly understood at all in the world of his time. This is a man who stumbled across some truth which for him is not only palpably uh, real and true, but also, and this is perhaps the crucial point, but also it's a quality of insight, a quality of understanding that leads to the stilling of formations, the relinquishing of attachments, the destruction of craving. So the way in which he understands this contingent nature of things is not just as some kind of intellectual conclusion, a sudden, aha, wow, that's interesting. But it's a a depth of insight, a depth of understanding that radically alters his whole perspective on things in a way that must have been profoundly shocking for him. Not only had he seen the world in an entirely new way, it had also transformed his relation to it. Seeing the world this way, he was then freed from the compulsions of trying to get this and get rid of that and somehow to control and manipulate these conditions to create some sort of secure and stable and reliable situation for him. That that whole way of reactivity had fallen fallen off, dropped away. That therein lies the freedom, the liberation that comes from simply attending to the conditions of life as they arise and vanish in each moment. Then you have a couple of verses. And the second one, I think, is the most crucial here. He says, Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma, which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. The term that fascinates me is this goes against the worldly stream. Pati sota gami. And I think in, in our modern parlance, we might say counterintuitive. That what the Buddha has experienced, he describes as something that's actually going against how we normally see things. Instead of seeing self, he realizes there is no self. Instead of discovering a world that conforms to his notions of constancy and permanence and dependability, he finds a world that is utterly inconstant, impermanent and unreliable. Instead of a world that offers itself up as an endless um, arena for our well-being, he realizes that that is a fiction. Things are simply not 
made that way for gratifying our desires. But there's another way in which his insight goes against the stream. It goes against the stream of his own religious culture, his own upbringing in Shakya and in the world of his time, which was dominated by the Brahmanic traditions. As we saw, his five ascetic companions were Brahmins from Shakya. The the Brahmins were those who saw themselves as the uh, as the priestly caste ordained by Brahman, by the divine, whose role in the world was to offer sacrifices, to keep alive the fires that they tended, to intercede, as it were, on behalf of humankind with the gods. Now this Brahmanic tradition also gave rise sometime after the the early Vedas or hymns to a, a series of writings called the Upanishads. And it's in the Upanishads that we find the the classic model of um, salvation that is still current in India today and would have been very much the way in which religious life was understood at the time of the Buddha. I'm going to summarize here, no doubt um, too simplistically. But the basic idea is that at the heart of each person, of each being, animals too, there is an immutable um, atman or soul or self that is permanent, that is luminous, that has something of the divine within it. And yet this self has for some reason or another been caught up in a process of repeated bodily incarnation. And, be- and having become confused by that, it forgets its true nature and becomes obsessed and driven by its desires and its attachments and its fears and its hatreds. So the Upanishads envision the possibility of moksha, of freedom, freedom from this cycle of birth and death, which is achieved through the soul, the self, recovering its identity with the true reality of the universe, which is Brahman, which, which, for the sake of ease, I'll call God. So we have a vision of the world um, that sees the mere appearances of things as really like a kind of illusion or maya, and by penetrating this illusion, seeing through this illusion, the soul is freed to reunite with the eternal divine ground or reality of God. Now the Buddha kind of turned this on, his, on its head. He maintained the basic idea of liberation as 
a liberation from the cyclic repetitions of birth and death. But he saw this as being achieved not by the, 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 the reuniting of the soul with God, but rather through understanding that there is no soul and there is no God. That freedom is found through seeing things as they are, as he said, and that, for him, was recognizing how everything is profoundly contingent. There is no maya in Buddhism, no illusory world. There is simply the rising and passing away of phenomena. There is no divine soul tucked away or concealed within these processes any more than then there is some divine ground or reality from whence they spring. There is simply the pure phenomenal display of things. So one can imagine that at his time, when nobody else has ever suggested anything remotely similar to this, it would very much have gone against the stream of conventional religious thought and practice and intuition. And even today, I think that for many religious, quote-unquote, people, Buddhism is often a bit of a puzzle. It doesn't seem to quite fit. When I, was, when I lived in England... I often got invited onto these radio shows in the BBC in which people of faith would be brought together to discuss some pressing issue of the day. (laughs) And I would find myself lined up usually with a couple of Christians, a rabbi, (laughs) um, a Hindu swami, and an imam. And almost invariably, within a few minutes of our discourse, the, the, the key term of our discussion would have begun with G, God. And at this point, I always felt myself in this similar di- dilemma. Do I go along with this and just kind of fuzz the God word a bit? <laughs> or do I say, wait a minute, guys, I don't know what you're talking about. My instinct, of course, and and I think what I truly felt, was I honestly didn't know what they were talking about. And it became very difficult to somehow participate in this discourse once it becomes an issue of our relationship with God. And on many similar occasions, I found myself in that kind of dilemma. It's comforting, of course, to think that we need to find something in Buddhism that can approximate to something the others call God, but I honestly don't think there is anything. There's certainly nothing within the Pali Canon that we can translate as God. It's not that the Buddha made any great fuss about denying the existence of God, In fact, he rarely says anything about it. 
it's not an atheism, which at root is really nothing but a, a sort of a negative relationship with God, but it is simply a non-theistic tradition. It doesn't require the use of that word to make spiritual sense. And it never really has done. And as a consequence, it has an odd position in the world of faith. But at the same time, the Buddha's understanding also goes against the stream in terms of common sense. And I think in many ways what we call common sense is the way we see the world as driven by our neurobiological organism. The Buddha again and again calls for us to pay attention to what he calls the three marks of being. That everything is impermanent, that everything is dukkha, a tricky word, we'll come back to that tomorrow. But basically, when referring to phenomena, dukkha means imperfect, unreliable, unsatisfactory, maybe flawed. And thirdly, that everything is anatta, selfless, impersonal, not me, not mine. And these three ways of looking at the world, I feel, are counterintuitive in terms of how we seem to have been hardwired for survival. To believe the world to be more or less constant and permanent, to be an arena for our well-being, and to be a place in which I and my family, let's say, will be able to survive intact to a future point in order to reap the goals of our present actions, seems to have been a very effective strategy for survival. And that seems to be the way in which we instinctively see things. And the Buddha seems to have noticed that those three things are precisely what cause us anguish and pain. If we inhabit such a world, when we're no longer primarily concerned with sheer survival, then those instincts become counterproductive. They, we find ourselves constantly in conflict with reality, like the little boy Sharda mentioned yesterday, looking forward to all the Christmas presents, and then having that weird feeling of being let down. But I suspect the same little boy the next Christmas went through the same little routine. <laughs> and as Sharda also said, the mother said, it took me until I was 50 before I figured that out. And even if we figured it out, even if we're good practicing Buddhists, we still know that we're just as susceptible to those lures and attractions. We never seem to learn that lesson, possibly because it's so counterintuitive. It goes against deep, instinctive impulses of gratification and desire. Now, 
although I've, I've, I've mentioned that the Buddha spoke of his insight as being rooted in sheer conditionality, he also uses a term um, which, which seems to point in another direction. And this is the idea of the unborn, the unconditioned, the deathless. He doesn't mention this term in this description of his awakening, but it occurs frequently in other places. And one of the most favorite texts of Western Buddhists is from the Udana, which is a collection of short miscellaneous pieces which are put together um, as a kind of inspirational collection. The Buddha says, Monks, there is an unborn, an unbecome, an unmade, an unconditioned. If that unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned were not, there would be no escape from this here that is born, become, made and conditioned. This seems to point to some kind of transcendent reality, an unconditioned and an unborn. Again, this is the only passage, the one I've read, in the whole of the Pali Canon that says that. And yet it's a text that's been given, I feel, undue prominence by modern readers. And one has to ask, why is that text so attractive? I think it somehow holds out the possibility of something like God. Obviously not a personal God, but some kind of transcendental reality. But fortunately, the Buddha has clarified exactly what he meant. (laughs) And in the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, which is the connected discourses, there's a a collection, uh, section 43, called the Asankata Sangyutta, Connected Discourses on the Unconditioned. And this is the Buddha speaking. And what, monks, is the unconditioned? The destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. And what, monks, is the path leading to the unconditioned? Mindfulness directed to the body. This is the path leading to the unconditioned. So although the Buddha uses these terms and perhaps they were already current at his time, I'm not entirely sure, when he is asked what they mean, he does this characteristic move of turning them from what appears to be a rather more classical religious idea into an actual psychological, spiritual possibility that each of us has access to here and now, namely non-hatred, non-greed, non-delusion. It's the absence of such drives that govern our lives that he calls the unconditioned or the deathless. It's not some kind of 
uh, subtle or cosmic or mystical state beyond us in some other realm. The text goes on where he takes all of these, and it's very tedious because he says exactly the same thing in each text. What is Nibbana? What is the deathless? What is the unconditioned? What is the unborn? It's non-hatred, non-greed, non-delusion. And again, we have to be careful. The, the negative non doesn't just mean the absence of. Otherwise, this bell here, it doesn't have any hatred, doesn't have any greed, doesn't have any delusion, therefore it's enlightened. <laughs> the non, um, very often in these kinds of expressions, refers not just to the absence of something, but to its opposite. So often, non-greed is thought of as detachment, non-hatred as kindness or compassion, and non-delusion as understanding. And they, I feel, provide the kind of ethical, philosophical um, underpinnings of the perspective from which the Buddha then finds himself living. Detachment, in other words, not this compulsive reaching out and grabbing onto things all the time. An ability to be at rest and at, at peace with the world. But also one that is not just a kind of indifference or neutrality, but one that is infused with insight and understanding and in relation to living beings, with compassion, with love, with tenderness, with kindness. And it could be that it's that aspect of his experience that began to come to the surface. He's in this state of of, of nibbana, of liberation, and yet at a certain point, his mind begins to turn back to others. Now, the way in which the text describes this is as follows. It describes the god Brahma Sahampati. Let's just call him Brahma. Who, who and it says, and then Brahma, as quickly as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm, vanished in the heavens and appeared before me. He arranged his upper robe and extended his hands in reverential reverential salutation and said, let the Buddha teach the Dhamma, let the Buddha um, teach what he has understood. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand this Dhamma. Now, again, I don't personally believe that a god literally descended from the heavens and then popped up before the Buddha and said, come on, sunshine, get out there, do something. (laughs) But rather, this is a, a symbolic or metaphorical way of speaking about the emergence of of form, the emergence of compassion, the emergence of a recognition of the suffering of others in the world within the Buddha's own experience. 
Brahma in Hindu cosmology is the creator of the universe. And it's thereby, I think, significant that what appears in this mythological language suggests creating something, creativity, engagement. Although in some of the texts the Buddha is very dismissive of Brahma, there's some wonderfully um, ironic passages in which the Buddha makes fun of Brahma for having the conceit that he's created the world. There's a very much a, um, a dismissal of the authority of the gods, which again would not have gone down terribly well with the Brahmins. The Buddha, in a way, arrives at that moment in human history when human beings suddenly realize that they are the ones who are responsible for this world and for their own lives. The gods are not completely um, uh, destroyed, but they're somehow knocked off their pedestals. They are dethroned. They're marginalized. But at other times, he actually endorses the idea of Brahma. He talks of the value of dwelling like Brahma, the Brahma-vihara, which are dwelling in states of love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. He also talks, when he's describing the way of life of his monks, that they should live like Brahma, Brahmacharya, which means, in this context, a celibate, pure, unattached life. And so we have, I think, again, a suggestion of how Brahma is the emergence of love, the emergence of compassion, but primarily the impulse to take the risk of putting into words what he has understood. We know he has this hesitation. He's not sure that anyone will understand him, but he's now, as it were, come to the point where he cannot but reach out for others. And so first of all, he thinks, well, you know, who, who could possibly understand this? What about my two teachers, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta? And he realizes that both of those have actually died. So he thinks, well, maybe my five former companions from Shakya Maybe they would understand, but he knows that they've gone off to Benares, you know, the sacred city of the Brahmins. And so he sets out for Baranasi, and you can see this on your map. He then heads northwest, well, west almost really, from Uruvela, probably goes through Gaia, and then heads for Benares and Sarnath. But before he gets there, he has his first encounter with another monk. And he says, When I had stayed at Uruvela as long as I chose, I set out to wander by stages to Benares. Between Uruvela and Gaia, the Arjivika Upaka saw me on the road and said, Friend, 
Your faculties are clear. The colour of your skin is pure and bright. Under whom have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? Whose dharma do you profess? And I replied to the Ajivika Upaka in stanzas, as one does. <laughs> and he says, I am, I am one who has transcended all, a knower of all, unsullied among all things, renouncing all, by craving, ceasing freed. Having known all this, for myself, to whom should I point as a teacher? I have no teacher, and one like me exists nowhere in the world with all its gods, because I have no person for my counterpart. I am the accomplished one in the world. I am the teacher supreme. I alone am a fully enlightened one whose fires are quenched and extinguished. When this was said, the Ajivaka Upaka said, May it be so, friend. <laughs> and shaking his head, he took a bypath and departed. Which is probably a good point to stop. <laughs> Thank you. This talk was given by Stephen Batchelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 23, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive.